0: yeah i got my brother-in-law joe here joy my son bennett here i know my parents are here for the first time since covid i don't know where they're sitting right now (laughs) and look outside i mean what are we doing inside right now (laughs) okay i'm just gonna tell you right now we're we're gonna plow today um some ways you're gonna feel like you're getting a history lesson and be okay with that, okay? Because the Bible is more than theology. The Bible itself is history. Uh, it is theology that comes out of story. And sometimes I think we divorce the story so much, or the theology from the story. And, and, and so today we're going to do a little bit more story history kind of stuff. We're, we're, we're going to plow. But This is going to serve us in the weeks ahead as we look at this book of Romans how to become a cruciform community, living cruciform lives. Romans, wow. It's almost intimidating to step into this book. This book has had a very profound impact on my life, starting when I was really young. Uh, So many amazing verses and chapters, but as I grew to understand even more of God's word and God's text in the context, its historical context, I also realized how misunderstood the book of Romans can be. And and I think one of the reasons for this is take a great movie or a great story. Or it doesn't have to be fiction. It could be be a great sporting event. And think about what makes that narrative, because they're all narratives, what, what makes it so inspiring Why whatever you're thinking about right now uh, is so moving, when I started to think along these lines, the the first thing that came to my mind uh, was the 1986 Masters, and uh, the Masters is the biggest golf tournament of the year, and this happened to be the year uh, in the final round when Jack Nicklaus, who was way behind the 46, 46 at the time, just came storming back out of nowhere. And he came to the 17th hole with the whole thing on the line. He's putting putting for birdie, and uh, he gets up and he makes the putt. And the announcer, Vern Lundquist, two words. Anybody know them? When Jack Nicholas made that putt on 17. Wow, I I feel so like. Are you you guys? What are you doing? <laughs> yes, sir. You don't remember that? Okay. <laughs> That's for you, Kurt, my brother. He's watching somewhere. Uh, OK, this one I know you know, though. 80, 1980 Olympics. I don't even have to give you the context. L. Michaels saying, "Do you believe in miracles?" I mean, that, that moment still gives me goosebumps when I think about it. What makes these moments, or whatever moment you were thinking of, magical is not just the moment itself. It is the full event, it's the whole story, it's the backstory. it's everything around the story. And see what we have done with the book of Romans is we look for those magical moments, those yes sirs, do you believe in miracles? And we, we extract them, we rip them right out of the context in which they were born, the context that shaped these statements And we just run them to our hearts. And because they're so profound still, they still speak to us. But more than any book in the Bible, we have especially done this with the book of Romans because there are some just incredible moments, statements, truths, life-changing that are in this book. But when we cherry-pick those verses... Verses that speak to God's amazing grace to me, how Jesus saves me, how Jesus has a wonderful plan for my life. We we then turn Romans almost into this track of how a person can be saved, and we call it Romans Road, and I know God has used that tremendously, but if we limit that to that, I mean, God did give us 16 chapters that every word is inspired. And even when we start to see those incredible verses that some of us hold dear in light of their greater context. They begin to sing, and they begin to pop, and they become even more potent in our hearts and lives. And so because of this, I'm going to really give you a lot of the background today. Last week, we learned that Romans Romans is a letter, and it's a letter that wasn't written to you or to me, It was a letter that was written to a specific church in a specific time in a specific place for a specific purpose. We need to know that. And the background of this letter to Romans is Rome. Rome. Rome is actually the background to the entire New Testament. And so much of my biblical learning acted like the New Testament just happened in a vacuum. Now we're talking about Rome. Think about this. Before Jesus even enters the world, this regional republic becomes a world empire. And this is all according to God's plan. Now, what's an empire? Well, empires essentially have four characteristics that make an empire an empire. Number one, they're a military power, and Rome had maybe the greatest war machine the world had ever seen. What else makes an empire is their political powers, and this happens when power is consolidated in a few. Sometimes it's an oligarchy, but usually it's in the one, and that was the case for Rome. It was all the powers consolidated into one person, the fuhrer, the emperor, Empires are also economic powers because they control the currency and with their power they get to tax everybody and, 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 and collect those taxes and when you have roads and, and, and trade routes that Rome controlled, I mean, Rome became this huge economic power. But the fourth characteristic that makes an empire an empire, the one that we probably forget the most, is that empires are ideological powers. Because if you're going to rule large masses of people for a long time, you need an ideology that holds the whole thing together. You need a gospel, a narrative, a theology. And see, Rome knew this. Rome knew that it needed for people to believe that Rome was more than a superpower, but that Rome was gospel, it was good news. It was salvation to the world. In fact, they're the ones that first popularized the word gospel. The church borrowed the term gospel, gospel in the Greek euangelion from the Romans. The Romans loved the word gospel, the gospel of Rome. But the way the Romans uh, started their ideological uh, Impact was they first introduced this idea of the goddess Roma. That Roma was actually a god or a genius or a spirit whom the poets, the oracles declared as divine with this manifest destiny uh, that must be worshipped. So temples started being built in all the major cities of the empire to this goddess Roma, and Roma now is being worshipped. By the masses but this evolved into even more in 44 BC again this is before Jesus Julius Caesar was assassinated by the Roman Senate at Julius Caesar's funeral this 10 day spectacle of games and gladiatorial events and chariot races on the first day a comet appeared in the sky and in all its brilliance just every day for seven days, slowly ascended to the heavens. And everyone concluded that that comet was Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens as a god. And so the very senate that assassinated Julius Caesar now declares Julius Caesar to be God. His nephew and adopted son Octavian capitalized on this First in 42 B.C., he and his friend Mark Anthony settle the score with Julius Caesar's assassins at the Battle of Philippi. Second after that, he takes out Mark Mark Antony, his good friends, at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C., and now Octavian has full power. So here's what you have in Octavian. As the son of Julius Caesar who has ascended to the heavens as a god, Octavian now declares himself to be son of God. And so his new name becomes Caesar Augustus. Augustus means one to be worshipped. And the highest titles that Caesar Augustus takes for himself, the first being Divi Filius, which means son of God, and the second is Pontifex Maximus, which essentially means the pope. Now the worship of the emperor himself spreads like wildfire. And temples now to divine Augustus, son of God, go up all over the empire. In fact, all the major cities in the empire are are, are competing. Who can show the most allegiance to Caesar, son of God? Herod the Great, this is all before Jesus even gets in the action. Herod calls himself King of the Jews. Herod rebuilds a city where Rome entered Israel, that land. Um, By land, he built a city there, or rebuilt it, and called it Caesarea. The whole city was devoted to the worship of Caesar. Of course, Caesarea shows up in our Bible. He builds Another city from scratch, this one's a harbor town, this is where Rome enters Israel via the sea, and he calls this city too, Caesarea, because this whole city is devoted to the worship of city, to Caesar. And then a third city, the former capital of the northern kingdom, he rebuilds that city, and that city he calls Sebaste, which is the Greek name for Augustus. In all three of these cities, he puts temples to worship. Caesar Augustus, a son of God. This is the world. This is Israel, the Israel that Jesus enters. And see, everyone thinks of Rome as this military power because Rome was that. But Rome is first and foremost an ideological power, better yet a narrative A narrative that they call gospel because it's this gospel that unifies and fuels their agenda to rule the world. And the centerpiece of this narrative, the glue that holds the whole empire together is this simple reality. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, the Savior, the Son of God, who brings peace to the world. Now, of course, to make this narrative gospel that people are going to believe in and get excited about required some propaganda, and Rome was as good as anybody at propaganda. They had runners. These runners were called evangelists, and these evangelists went throughout the empire. They'd go from city to city heralding the gospel of Rome and all the accomplishments of the Caesars. If you lived in the Roman Empire at this time, wherever you traveled, you would see plastered everywhere Caesar, Son of God, Emperor, Pontifex, Maximus. It's on the roads, on the mile markers. It's plastered on the city gates when you'd enter the city. The temples were in every city, worshiping Caesar. Every coin almost had Caesar's image on it with those words, Divius Filius, Son of God, Pontifex Maximus. is everywhere. To buy and sell in the marketplace, sometimes you'd have, before you could participate, would say, Caesar is Lord. To participate in politics, you would say, Caesar is Lord. To participate in the games, the chariot races, the gladiator spectacles, Caesar is Lord. I mean... This is Nazi Germany on steroids. And think about how our New Testament begins in the days of Caesar Augustus. That's like saying in the days of the Fuhrer. And while all this is taking place, another king has been born, Christ. Another gospel, another kingdom has been unleashed, the church and this king and this kingdom stand in utter contrast to Caesar's kingdom, but listen to me, it is every bit as invasive. Now listen to our text for today. Let's stand for it, Romans 15. And I'm going to start reading... At verse 14, this is Paul talking. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I love that Paul says that. I feel the same way about this church, that this church hardly needs me or any clergy because you guys are so Uh, full of knowledge, you're so full of good, you're so capable of instructing one another. That's what Paul's saying. He says, yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now listen, every time you see Gentile in in, in Romans, it's the Greek word ethnos. So don't just think a non-Jew. The best translation is nations. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points. Remind you of them again because of the grace God gave to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations. He gave me the priestly duty. What's that priestly duty? It's that uh, call to stand in the gap on behalf of, of someone. And and who is Paul standing in the gap? On behalf of, he is proclaiming the gospel of God so that the nations might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, says Paul, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the nations to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, which I know that doesn't mean not anything to you probably, but he's talking about a large landscape within the Roman Empire itself where he has gone, where he can say, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. He said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, to those who are not told about him, they will see, and to those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you be seated. I mean, think about what the driving passion of Paul's life is. is to bring the gospel to the nations. And let me show you a map of, of, of Paul's journey, his, his missionary activity. The, the, the blue in the middle is the Mediterranean Sea, and around that whole sea is the Roman Empire, and all those lines that you see are places Uh, in cities, towns, villages, that, that Paul has taken the gospel. He's taking it right into the heart of Rome's empire. With every journey, every stop, he is proclaiming the gospel of God. He is pushing the gospel of King Jesus deeper and deeper into the empire. Now consider this. The way Rome brought their gospel and proclaimed their gospel to the world was by planting cities. And they would adorn these cities with the best that Rome had to provide, uh, running water, water, uh, streets, roads, theaters, stadiums, spas, shopping malls, all these things to preach to the, Rome, this, to the world. This is, this is the greatness of Rome. Paul and the apostles, they bring their gospel to these same cities, and they plant churches. These many cities, within those cities, counterculture, cities on a hill, as Jesus described them, to be salt and light to those cities. And what are these cities adorned with? The very presence of God, the love of God, the family of God. And these cities became the most potent force in the world, including the Roman Empire. It was a power. It was a, it was a subversive power. It was, it was an invasive power. I mean, there are so many places in Acts where I could show this to you, but I'll take you to Acts chapter 17. Look at what it describes here in verses 6 to 7. When they did not find them, the, they are, are, are these Jews, um, They began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities. Jason is is a Jew that has come to faith in Christ, and he welcomes Paul uh, and and Paul's friends. And therefore, they're dragging Jason um, to the city authorities. And listen to what they say. These men who have upset the world, literally, they have turned the whole world upside down. Think about that reality. Our brothers and sisters did that 2,000 years ago. They turn the whole world upside down. And then it says, in Jason, they, they say, and Jason has welcomed these guys, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. His name is Jesus. Are we turning our world upside down? We belong to the same subversive kingdom we 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 believe the same powerful gospel think about this we have a book in our bible called romans because this is a letter to a church in rome in other words a church is born literally in the belly of the beast in rome Now, am sorry i'm going all history on you today um But let's ask how this happened. How how did a church get birth in Rome? Because Paul says it wasn't him. Here's what you have going on. By by the time of Jesus, Jews have already become really good at living as exiles in foreign cities. And they're living in foreign cities all over the world by this time. I mean, that's true about Jews even today. Um, they, they, They live in cities outside of... Jerusalem, most Jews live in the major cities of the world. Even today, high Jewish populations in places like New York and Miami and L.A. Rome, of course, being the largest city at this time, it's about the size of what Grand Rapids is today. 40,000 Jews make up that population. They are a force in Rome. And because Jews are also very interconnected in the first century, this was namely due to Torah, to their story, and all the holidays that celebrate the story, Uh, first century Jews would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They come from all over the world, from all of these major cities. So take the Jews that are living in Rome. I can pretty confidently say that that... Some of them, maybe many of them, saw Jesus. They listened to Jesus teach in the temple because at, Jesus is at these holidays too, and he's not just at them, but he's Michael Jordan. Everybody wants to see him. I think some of these Jewish Jews were also there to see Jesus die. Mark's gospel gives us an interesting detail, and Mark's gospel is actually written to these same Roman Christians. Listen to what it says. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is Paul giving us that detail? That Rufus. Well, because Rufus is part of this congregation in Rome that Paul is writing to, and he's doing a little shout-out to Rufus. Yeah, Rufus' dad, when Jesus couldn't carry the cross anymore, it was Rufus' dad who picked it up and took it the rest of the way. Then you get to Romans 16. When Paul's greeting all the Christians there in Rome, he says, and greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. This is how interconnected everything is. Or, or take this verse in, in Acts chapter 2, which describes Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, is This Jewish holiday, 50 days after Passover. And so it says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. That's just what I described. This is what happened at these holidays. They would all descend upon Jerusalem from from every nation. All these cities, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. And this is describing something 50 days just after Passover, 50 days after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. Imagine the Jews that were at Passover going back to their friends in Rome and saying, you guys won't believe what happened this year in Jerusalem at Passover. I wonder how many people then returned to this feast 50 days later, Pentecost, And then think about what happens at Pentecost. Read Acts chapter 2. Imagine witnessing God's glory coming down, hearing Peter's powerful sermon about Christ, where it says everyone was cut to the heart. 3,000 people were baptized, and imagine returning to Rome with that news. So it's not hard to see how Jew and these Gentile converts to Judaism are starting to believe that this Jesus is the long awaited Messiah, he's here, he's come. But now there's a new problem. Because if you think Rome is Paul's greatest challenge, you're probably wrong. Paul's greatest challenge actually came from his own camp. The Jewish people. The Jewish people who don't want to change. See, before Jesus, this this whole thing was Jewish. Yes, you had some Gentile converts to Judaism, but that Gentile had to become circumcised, eat kosher food, keep Jewish holidays, obey all the requirements of the Torah, and even then you would still be an outsider. But Jesus changed all this because Christ is now the all-in-all in in everything. He's even the all-in-all of Torah. He's the all-in-all of the whole story. He's the all-in-all of every law. And now everything centers on Christ. And what Christ does is he blows up this parochial inward Judaism. He blows it up. Blows up all the status and the privilege that existed. He says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor fee- free, because we're all one in Christ. And, you know, Paul understood these Jews. He wants to resist the change, even to the point where he was so zealous about this, he killed Jews that started to believe in Christ. But it all changes for for Paul when, when Paul encounters Christ and the scales literally fall off his eyes. And I think for the first time, he sees God's heart. He sees God's bleeding heart for the nations. And that God's heart has never changed. That God's heart always bled for the nations. That the only reason that God picked Israel is because God wanted a partner to reach the nations. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family so that through you and your family, all the families on the earth would be blessed. And Paul, after this encounter, all he could say was, here am I, Lord. Send me Have you ever had that in your life? An encounter with God that was so profound, where you so got God's heart, where all you could say, Hear my sin, me. It was my junior year in college, and I was running the track late at night, looking up at the stars, just being blown away. Like, who? Who, who made these? And I'm not, I'm not a mystic, I'm not a charismatic, but I, but I had an encounter with God that night that ended with, here my Lord, send me. And Paul had this encounter. <laughs> and then every City that Paul goes to. I mean, he goes to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. It's the first place that he goes, and, and usually some of the Jews they believe it gets traction in their heart. But there are also others that just go all Saul on Paul. I mean, Paul takes a beating after beating. And why does he take all these beatings? Because of religion. And religious people are Paul's greatest challenge. They were also Jesus' greatest challenge. And today, because religion is not confined to one religion, religion is also Christianity's greatest challenge. Religion. What do I mean by religion? Religion is innately inward, as opposed to upward and outward. Religion is When I make God all about me, all about my happiness, when I make God all about my tribe, my people, my nation, my culture. Religion is when we make God about the business of serving me and my needs. Using God, manipulating God, reinterpret it reinterpreting God, getting God to be the means to my ends, my plans, what I want, what I like. And see, because religion makes us the focal point instead of God, it comes up with all kinds of rules. Religion absolutely loves rules because rules are what show who the good people are and who the bad people are. And, and what rules are used to do are they exalt the religious and they knock down the irreligious. I was thinking about this week, this week. I never thought I would see the day when the world outside the church is more religious than the church. Because our world is fast becoming the religion it claims to hate. God hates religion. Because religion is diametrically opposed to the gospel. I loved what I heard you guys say today. Like this isn't about us, that's a gospel statement. The gospel means it's not about us, it's not about how good we are, it's about God, it's about how good God is. The gospel is not what we do, what we perform and give to God, the gospel is what god does what god performs and freely gives to us those are two radically different things which is why i gave you this sheet of paper because this week i want you to spend some time with this in your devotion your devotional life asking yourself are you into religion or do you know the gospel You see, the Pharisees during Jesus' day are the ones who epitomize religion. They're the ones that are saying, look at me. Look at how much I give. Look at how much I help the poor. Look at how I pray and fast. It was all about them and for them. And that's who Paul was before he met Christ. He said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the best Pharisee. But here's what you have. At the end of the day, even though religion in Rome looks so different, they're essentially the same thing. Religion and Rome are both about power, self-glory, self-importance, and propaganda. That's why Jesus looked at the most religious people of his day, and he said to them, he said, the pimps and the prostitutes are coming into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Religious, religious people hated Jesus. They killed him. And see, wherever Paul goes, he is encountering religious people and religious people hate Paul. But he still goes. Synagogue after synagogue. Beating after beating. Preaching the gospel of King Jesus. In fact, in verse 25 of our text today, Paul's talking about how he's on the way to Jerusalem. He's made it, he's he's He has this collection that he's bringing to to the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is is the poorest of of all the churches how cool is that first of all just think about that thought when churches start thinking of other churches and churches start helping other churches to the point where they are taking collections for other churches paul is into that but here's what paul is also thinking which is why in verse 30 he asked for the roman church to pray for him and you also see this in acts he's thinking he could die It's a dangerous thing for Paul to go back to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because he's going right back into the heart of religion. And then when you read what happens to Paul when he gets back to Jerusalem, you can read about this in Acts 20 to 22. He he gets back to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple courtyard. Some of his haters are there. They start a rumor about Paul. And all of a sudden, the crowd begins to mob him. And listen to how this reads now in, in Acts 21, verse 30. The whole city was aroused. Boy, Paul's good at arousing a city, isn't he? And people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. They were trying to kill Paul. Can you see it? News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So this Roman com- commander comes in, he saves Paul, and Paul asks him, "Sir, could I speak to this crowd?" And the commander is blown away that Paul is speaking Greek, so he says, Sure. Then Paul stands before this whole crowd and in perfect Hebrew addresses them. He says, My brothers, my spiritual fathers. And the text says, At that moment, the crowd became utterly silent. And Paul did what we heard this morning he gave his testimony. He talked about the zealot that he was, how he met Christ, how Jesus changed his life. And and this whole time, they're just drinking out of Paul's hands until Paul says this. This is in chapter 22, verse 21. Paul says, then the Lord said to me, go, Paul, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And when the crowd heard this, they raised their voices and they shouted, Rid this man from the earth. He is not fit to live. It's the Gentiles. This is religion. God for me, God for my tribe, God for my culture, God for my people. And think about how depressing this is at a time when the world so needed God's people to be the shining light to the nations. God's people instead were reduced to this nationalistic, ethnocentric, stuck inside itself entity. You know where I'm going with this. Are we any different? How quickly we make this about our tribe, about our people, about our culture, about our nation, thinking that God is for us, forgetting that God loves the world and that his gospel is for every family on the face of the earth. Here's my biggest fear for the church right now is that we tap out. That we tap out of the city, that we tap out of the schools, that we tap out of fighting for justice, that we tap out of doing hard things, costly things, things that, that, that demand our lives, because we can. We have a missionary couple. You know what? I can't even say their names. I, I, I got rightly scolded by our mission's pastor, Matt Stoll, for saying their names in the first service because of the predicament that they are in in Africa. They are in a Muslim country where civil war has, has broken out, and the Christians in this country are watched. They are being persecuted, and, and they're literally witnessing. They just went to a village where they proclaimed Christ to this village, and the, the next week the village was taken out, literally. Listen to what he writes. He says, yes, trusting Jesus. We sat in a village today and shared God's love for a people who have never heard this message. Guess what? If you're wondering if there are still Pauls today, yep. Today I've been so thankful for the gift of this meaningful work. In this uncertain time, we are certain of our purpose here and God's love for these people. This thing is worth risking it all for. (laughs) And not everyone gets to live this kind of life. Can you say that today? We need a mindset change. We need to change our minds from what God can do for me, for us, to a mindset that says, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die for the sake of the gospel. Our world, right now, needs the church to rise up and be the church. That Jesus died for and unleashed 2,000 years ago. And think about Paul. Here he is. He's between these two tsunamis. He's between the tsunami of Rome and the tsunami of religion, and he didn't tap out. He didn't retreat to safe space. He went right into the jaws of both. He went right into Rome's major cultural bastions, city like Thessaloniki, Athens, Ephesus, Corinth. He eventually is going to get to Rome itself. And all the while, he's just boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and this movement is taking place. Communities of people are are, are birthed, cruciform communities living cruciform lives. John Dominic Crossan, someone whose theology I don't like that much, but his history is outstanding. He says this, he says that. In the first century, to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God was deliberately denying Caesar his highest title, or as N.T. Wright so often put it, puts it. He says to declare Jesus is Lord in the first century, to call him the Savior of the world, is also to say, Caesar, you're not. Listen to how Paul starts the Gospel of Romans. And we're wrapping this up. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who is. Who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's guts. That's the guts and courage of Paul. That's the guts and courage that the disciples had. Jesus trained them to have this guts, to have this courage. Paul and these disciples boldly, boldly pushed Jesus into their Roman world, declaring Jesus, Jesus to be the true Lord, the true Savior, the true Son of God. And they boldly called people to give their allegiance to him. And I know a lot of Christians that just want to say, you know, Paul, he was just a special, he was a special class of Christian. You know what Paul says? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Become like me, says Paul, as I become like Jesus. Are we like Paul? A.W. Tozer I wrote this four decades ago, maybe even more, maybe before I was even born, (laughs) Um, doing commentary on that story I told you when Paul is approaching Jerusalem, the text where Paul says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, I am ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's Acts 21, verse 13. This is what A.W. Tozer writes. The church at this moment needs men, and I will add women, the right kind of men, bold men, bold women. We languish for men who feel themselves expendable in the warfare of the soul, who cannot be frightened by threats of death because they have already died to the allurements of this world. Such men will be free from the compulsions that control weaker men. They will not be forced to do things by the squeeze of circumstances. Their only compulsion will come from within or from above. This kind of freedom is necessary if we are to have prophets in our pulpits again instead of mascots. These free men will serve God and mankind from motives too high to be understood by the rank and file of religious people who today shuttle in and out of the sanctuary. They will make no decisions out of fear, take no course out of a desire to please, accept no service for financial gain, perform no religious act out of mere custom, nor will they allow themselves to be influenced by the love of publicity or the desire for reputation. A.W. Tozer. There are men and women in this church like this, and God is raising up more right now. Where's your allegiance today? The biggest two barriers to the church being the church today, this cruciform community living cruciform lives, the first barrier is Rome. (laughs) Rome. Because I see so many today abandoning the church for politics. And I get it, because if you want to change the world, the church becomes a very easy... Thing to leave, especially as a church forgets its mission and, and becomes a country club and, and, and plays it safe by staying on the beach instead of getting in the boat. But you're badly mistaken if you think your party and its politicians and political theories are the hope for our world or that the presidential office is the world's savior. And you know why Paul is writing Romans? Because he loves the church. And we're going to see that this church in Rome, it's such a mess. There's so much infighting. There's division, Jew against Jew, Jew against Gentile. Yet Paul believes in the church. He believes that the church is God's vehicle to repair and redeem and restore a broken world do we believe this you are the church are you being the church and the second barrier and it's the biggest one it's religion how religion how religious are you right now how, how religious ha, ha, have we become as a church Because the religious heart with all its self-righteousness and self-importance and all of its attitudes about itself is the hardest heart to reach. The Calvinist theologian John Gerstner said this. He said "The, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, but it's your damnable good works. Because doing can be a very very deadly thing. Which is why the hymn that says, by his work, Christ's work, we're saved. So rest in the hands of the Savior. Rest in him. So we cast our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to be here today. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during his day, he said, I wish to live in no other time. God, may our hearts say the same thing, that we wish to live in no other time. For such a time as this. God, may we we repent of Rome, may we repent of our self-righteousness and all of our religion. Jesus, would you give us eyes to see you, your cruciformed lordship, your cruciform life, and may we live it. You bid us to come and to die so we could have life and bring life. May we follow you, Jesus, in your name.